We at the Other Side of Hell podcast are not therapists, doctors, or counselors. We're just two guys who have been through hell and come out the other side. Please be aware, we may talk about drinking and drugging in detail. Anyone struggling with addiction may find this triggering. Our goal is to share our stories, explore our struggles, and connect with others through our experience. Remember, we are not alone. There is hope, and together we can get better. What's up, world? I'm Willie. And I'm Cameron. Welcome back, Cameron. Welcome, Willie. Yeah. It's good to be here. Dude, I'm 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 riveted. I'm I'm getting into role, you know. For the listeners and viewers, it's it's sometimes we sometimes get a topic and we sometimes get stories that are so riveting, overwhelmingly emotional. Like, and there's no exception to this one. I don't even know how to how to really get into it because this story we have today is from Jen, uh, and it's you know just right up front. It's pretty intense. She's got a lot of yeah. a lot of, uh... and she was willing to, to share in depth the the dysfunction of her life and and the the trauma that came along with how intense her drug and drug use was mm-hmm. so we'll we'll get into that but but pulling out of that we got a really good topic yeah because that, there were definitely those moments in her story where she could see clearly that things were happening for her that uh that she couldn't do for herself yeah, right so, yeah and as I'm on this new path of, of trying to connect with a power greater than myself, mm-hmm. a higher power, if you will, I love it. Um, what came out of it as I was talking to her and, and she was sharing her story with me via Zoom, uh, we decided to talk about God doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, which is a common theme in recovery. Yeah, it's something we hear a lot in, in the rooms of AA, um, specifically. Huh. Yeah. And uh, yeah, good topic, man. I love watching you on this journey. There's so many times where you'll say things to me and I'll just be like, fuck, it's a trip. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like the, the Willie from a year ago wouldn't have said that. Uh, yeah, well, I'm not uh, the Willie I was a year ago. You're not the you Willie thank you were God. yesterday. Thank God. Yeah. Thank, thank goodness. Heaven, heavens to Betsy. Heavens to <laughs> Betsy. Thank goodness. Right? Yeah, well, I'm really proud of you. You know, it's funny, my, my sponsor and I were talking uh, last night about um, the change that overcomes us, you know, and, and I've heard other, you know, I think Wayne Dyer, I've brought him up several times on the show, but he talks about how we're literally not the same person we were. Mm-hmm. You know, every cell in our body is different. And mm-hmm. what the, the one thing I dare say remains the same is the addiction inside of us, right? The, the ism never really goes away, even though all our cells change and our our bodies change and our income changes and you know, all that stuff. The the addiction stays the same. Just gets that's more powerful. That's interesting to think so, about. So yeah, that's constantly kind of, a, kind of reborn, but we have the same struggle. So it's a good idea to probably stay in touch. Yeah, with the solution, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, man. Like I, I, I think this topic is a good one because I think that it uh, it was not. It wasn't easy to come to the conclusion or to um, decide or be willing to decide that there was a, a power greater than myself that could help help me with this, you know, yeah. that could restore me to sanity. Um, but then, you know, once once you kind of take that step um, and and make that decision, you can go back in those moments of your journey and just see like, oh, man, like 
the fact that this happened or went the way that it did is really <laughs> just kind of crazy. Yeah. You know? And, uh, and I think that she's got that in her story. You've got that in your story. I've got that in my story. And I think anybody really with, with, uh, with a recovery journey is likely to have similar things in their, in their story. So I think it's important to share. Um, and it's important to talk about because the more that we're able to see those commonalities, the more that, you know, like we can see clearly that, um, we're more alike than we are different. Right. And, and, you know, whether it's 12 step or, um, you know, refuge recovery or, you know, something that you're working out with a therapist or whatever the case is, like, however you decide to get sober and, and hopefully stay sober, you know, the one thing that, that is true is that, uh, you know, there's, there's been these things along our journey that, that really we wouldn't have gotten sober without. Um, and, and oftentimes we like to think of those as instances where God was doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Right. Yeah. We, we've heard it said, how is the worst thing that ever happened to you? The best thing that ever happened to you. Right. Kind yeah. of, kind of thing. And so we go through our past and, and, and I think this is a great topic because I needed people when I first heard, uh, in the preamble or, or wherever it says in the, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, or in, in meetings in general, because I heard it in Narcotics Anonymous too when I was a regular NA uh, participant, um, was uh, God doing for me what I could not do. This is an example of God doing for me what I could not do for myself. And it, people would give us give examples in their own life where they would explain, I was this certain way and this certain thing happened, and I couldn't have done that on my own. You know, I, I couldn't have came up with something that miraculous on my own i tried or, mm-hmm. or whatever you know and whether it's a person that came into your life or a message that you heard or a new level of willingness to try something different you know people would be talking about this stuff in meetings and i didn't quite understand what it meant and so i would continue to go to meetings and i would continue to hear it until i could relate with that on stories of my own and, and see like wow this this was an example of that and usually it took some time of introspection and, and like measuring backwards to certain experiences before I could really connect the dots and go, okay, maybe it's coincidence, but today I'm going to call it God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a new, you know, perhaps it's a psychic change through a series of events. Maybe it's God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it could be any of those things because based on whatever it is you believe or where you're at on your spiritual, you know, journey, um, you can call it whatever you want, but something happens right. in order for us to be where we're at. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And so for me, um, there was several times mm-hmm. of that car wrecks that I didn't die in arrests that I didn't get shot in fights that I didn't die in, in mm-hmm. uh, drugs that I, that I did that, I didn't die for like, like <laughs> I keep coming back to dying. Like all these times I didn't die jobs. I got that, that gave me a career path. Yeah. Uh, people that, that I came in contact with that, you know, became a huge part of my life, such as yourself and Jordan, you know, Rylan over there, back there running the camera. All these things came together in ways that if I would have done what I wanted to do, my life wouldn't be, as good as it is yeah kind of thing so you know we were talking before the show like 
what do you what do you got, Cameron? What's what's so many? Your, like, what's your experience with God doing for you what you couldn't do for yourself? Yeah, like I, uh, you know, I, I think that there's some things that uh, that are easy to to look at and and see in retrospect, and then there's there's some things that are harder to to sort of define that way. But I think. As you were talking, I, I was thinking about all those same things that I had where, you know, like I, I, I was one of those people that I never got a DUI and I drove drunk, you know, on almost a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And I never, um, I've never killed anybody. Like, uh, there was definitely at least two or three times where I drove home from a location that was 40 miles away, have no recollection of the drive. You know, there were friends that were following me in one instance, who were on the phone with other people, other loved ones of mine saying he's all over the fucking road. Like, uh -huh. and I don't remember that drive at all, you know, and somehow I made it home. And, um, and so for me, it's like, man, I can, I can see that there was something, something looking over me, you know, in that instance, um, there was something watching out for me, um, because the, you know, all those things should have happened. But I think specifically like, some of the more simple things, um, are what I think about when I think of like God doing for me, what I couldn't do for myself is like, well, I'm sober, like getting sober period was something that I couldn't do mm -hmm. on my own. Um, and the people that were put in my path, um, that helped me get sober were, were put in my path for a reason. Um, one of the biggest things for me was, you know, my older brother um, had been trying to talk some sense into me <laughs> or at least like get me open to the idea that I needed a treatment program specifically. Oh. Right. Right. Um, and cause I knew I had a problem, but I was going to figure it out. I was going to figure it out on my own. And I don't think that that's uncommon <laughs> sure. for any of us. Sure. Like we go through that stage of sort of acknowledging the fact that there's an issue, but you know, like there's no reason why we can't do it ourselves. And, and that's just the thing It's like, I, I came to the conclusion that I couldn't do it myself. But one of the first instances of me not being able to do it myself and sort of an act of surrender was, you know, like I went over to his house. I was hammered drunk, even though I said I wasn't going to be. And I knew that that was a moment where I really, really tried not to drink and I did anyways. And, um, and he was just talking to me, dude. And he's just like, I get it, man. Like you're scared. You're, you're all these things. Like, just let me make the phone call. Just let me call, mm -hmm. you know, like I will call for you. And I was just like, okay. Yeah. You know, I just let it happen. And it was because like, I couldn't make that call myself. I, yeah. I just couldn't, you know? And, uh, and, and he made the call and, and with as scared as I was, like I entered a treatment program and that, that wouldn't be the time that I got sober, but it was an introduction to a sober lifestyle. Um, I mean, I was sober for a minute, but, um, it wasn't the one that stuck, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I think that, that's that's one of those instances where it was very clear that like God is doing for me what I couldn't do for myself, and He was working through, you know, those people around me. Yeah, and um, and I see that happening a lot of times where, 
you know, God is working through those people around me. And for whatever reason, like I have nothing left. Yeah. I've just, I, I've only but to surrender in that instance. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that was something that I, I wasn't sure I could do, you know, and I did in that instance. Yeah. That's, that's one of the many examples for me. Yeah. I I always wondered, like, I I think it's so miraculous that I'm here and I can go back and I can, I can think about the close calls and, and a couple of really violent situations come up for me when I'm, when I'm thinking about this. And one of them, is one that I've been thinking about lately and kind of sharing about at meetings and stuff. You know, I came from a pretty violent background and and for me, Mm. for me, it wasn't uncommon to be either watching violence, a part of violence or creating violence. It it wasn't uncommon, whether it was a Tuesday night, a Friday night, whether we had started drinking yet, or if it was going to or from a drug dealer or any of that stuff. Um, it was just a part of my daily life for the most part. And it's weird because I came from such a small town in Wyoming, mm-hmm. such a small town in, in comparison to even where I live now. Oh, the, sure. The place I live now is four times the size of the town that I grew up in. But, um, it, we were, we were a rough crowd. We were, we were a rough gang of kids and, and, uh, what was the name of that first gang? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And uh, we, we, uh, you're not going to share it. No, uh, <laughs> it doesn't matter. We were, I think we were like 10 or 11. Yeah. When we started, wanted to be gangsters. I mean, yeah. uh, there was something attractive to that lifestyle. And, and, and we would backyard fight and, and all that stuff. And as, as drugs and alcohol came along, like, like in Jen's story, you know, huffing was, was early for me. Yeah. And it started, you know, that was something that she shares in her story. Mm-hmm. And so like huffing gas, huffing rubber cement, huffing glue, huffing Freon, you know, anything that could take us away from the way that we felt about ourselves. And I didn't know that that's what we were doing. We were just trying to have fun and, yeah. and be a part of, yeah. it didn't, it didn't seem like it didn't seem like there was a dysfunction involved with it, but I can look back now and see that there was, but there was one particular night and I think God was doing for a lot of people what none of us could do for ourselves because, you know, we started day drinking early. Um, I think I was probably 20 or 21 at the time. And, um, uh, I was hanging out with this specific group of people and some of them were, were doing heavy drugs. Some of them were just smoking pot. Some of them were smoking pot and drinking, and, and I could kind of bounce around between all those groups. And um, we started drinking early that day. And a lot of us knew each other for a very long time since we were little kids. And we'd, we'd spread apart and come back together at different mm-hmm. times. You know, somebody would go to jail or prison or juvie. They'd come back. Their parents would move them to a family member's <laughs> house outside of, outside of the state. They would come back. And every time somebody came back from one of those places we would either get along or we wouldn't, you know, depending on where they went and what they came back as, you know, some people would move to a different city and come back as a different gang member wearing a different color or whatever. And we would, we would play the part. We would play whatever that part is. And, uh, there was one particular friend that, that we were, we were, uh, harassing that day for whatever reason. I can't remember, you know, Chuck had a problem with Ryan and we were day drinking. We were all drunk and went up to his house and started harassing him and, and, and Ryan had a big brother that was notorious for being a fighter. 
hmm. right? His name was Jake, and and um, he like like the story was this guy knocked out a horse, right? Like like oh, this, yeah, this guy was. <laughs> Jake was nobody to fuck. Nobody fucked with Jake. I feel like that's such but, a small town. You know? Like, like he, <laughs> uh, and, and I, I had watched Jake fight a couple people and, and, uh, like I said, violence was, was common. And, and so we were harassing him anyway. Like we fucked around and n- n- no harm really. Just, just, I'm, I mean, probably emotionally I look back on it now and his feelings were hurt or whatever. But then we went to a party that night <laughs> and, and, uh, that was also not uncommon, you know, just go to a party. And it, it, it was supposed to be a fun night. We had the girls over, we had plenty of liquor, um, no thought of earlier that day. We were already drinking yeah. and partying. Mm-hmm. And so we're starting to party, the girls are starting to loosen up, and uh, we're all starting to have a good time. And all of a sudden, Jake shows up ov- over at this house, right, banging on the door, fucking screaming at everybody. And I... I kind of forgot that we were fucking with his brother and so i go outside what up jake blah, blah, you know, just, <laughs> just kind of he, and he's like ah he's all mad i'm like what are you mad about bro and then and then bailey comes running out of his house with a shotgun and he had this little single shot 12 gauge shotgun and everything happened really fast but he came out he put that gun to jake's head i grabbed it i pulled it up and he pulled the trigger and mm. it went off right above jake's head everybody scattered it was it was super loud um jake ended up tackling him he kicked his eyeball in thankfully it was a single shot we all kind of took off in different directions and and uh for for whatever reason um nobody got murdered that night and and it was that close yeah and 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 it wasn't even something that i had thought much about i was kind of bummed that the party got ruined Mm -hmm. you know and so um you know, like, like what would my life be today if, if he would have blew Jake's brains out all over, over oh, and over what, you know, yeah. just such, such insignificant behavior. There, there was no, there was no reason for any of it, none of it. And there's so many examples of my life being close like that. You know, I went on, uh, I started hanging out later with this guy named Cell Phone Ray and um i love it yeah and, and and the reason he was called that is because he could go and he'd go and dive through these dumpsters and get people's information out of like like bank dumpsters and shit and he'd get people's information out of there and then he would hook up cell phones illegally you know like he, he knew how to do that and so you could get burner phones from this guy and um and i was hanging out with him and he like went to go meet these people and I was like, I want to go with you. And he's like, no, I got to go alone tonight. And he came back and he, he came back and he's, his clothes were ripped and he had these little circles, just these little blood circles around his face where they were punching him with a gun. And, um, they robbed him and, and punched him, pistol whipped him with this gun. And then we went out after that looking for these people. Mm-hmm. Right. And I never found them. And I, and, and I can look back at my willingness to do these violent crimes and, and be a part of this lifestyle where it never ended like tragically. It ended, you know, somewhat safely, I guess, you know, because I'm, I, I didn't kill anybody yeah. and I'm not in prison for any of that stuff. And, and the people are still alive at the moment that that happened. But I had no control over myself at that time. Right. I was so involved in drugs and, and 
maintaining my buzz that I was willing to be a part of all these really dangerous things. And, and when I talk to like a therapist or a professional about this stuff, they're like, wow, you kind of loved a fucked up life. And I, and I go back and I'm like, well, you know, that was a Thursday. I mean, <laughs> should have seen what happened on Friday. Yeah. Kind, kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, um, I had no control over the outcome of any of that stuff or my behavior in it that I couldn't, I couldn't not be in those positions because like Jen, like Jen talked about, like, no matter my desire for a better way of life, I couldn't do it on my own. Yeah. I couldn't. And it took all these instances. It took where at one time I wanted that stuff and I invited those things into my life, but I wanted those things on my terms. You know, I wanted drugs and alcohol and women and money and flashy shit because I thought it was going to make me something. I thought it was going to make me complete. And then I end up having those things to an extent, but the negative came in more and more uninvitedly, mm -hmm. right? The, it, it was just more and more of the negative. Like we've said so many different times on the show, it went from fun and fun with problems and then just problems. Yeah. Right? And so I agree with you, what you said, you know, getting sober after a lifestyle, a lifetime of that kind of shit mm -hmm. is definitely God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself because at the end, the desire was there. I think the willingness was there, but the ability wasn't. Yeah. Well, and one of the greatest things I've heard you say recently um, with sort of your, your journey with where you are in your journey is the fact that you're here and sober and in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous this much time later, like, how dare you say, right? <laughs> yeah. Like share, like say, yeah. say it the way that you, I've heard you say it in a meeting, right? Like, how dare you say, or who are you, right? How dare I? Yeah. How dare I sit here sober after asking to be sober, mm -hmm. right? And, and deny the presence of a power greater than myself. How dare I think yep. I'm, think I'm the one. Exactly. You know, mm -hmm. and, but I've been there. Yeah. I've, I've been there like, you know, and, and thankfully so. Yeah. Because it, it, it put me in a position of willingness to grow a little bit more in spirituality. Right. Mm -hmm. When self will has failed utterly. And we find that no human power can relieve us of this. Not ourselves, not other people, not, not gurus or teachers, you know, not the things that worked once before. And we have to reach inside and touch that spiritual place for guidance, you know, something inside of us that's connected with something universally. Uh, it, it's, it's miraculous, mm -hmm. man, you know, and, and I'm thankful to of the people that were before me talking about this stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we're explaining it and how that looked so that when it was my turn to search for it, I knew what to look for. Yeah. Type stuff. Right. Yeah. You know, in a way that, that, you know, we were able to comprehend and, and be open to at that time. And I think that, um, when I, you know, when I was thinking about that story that I just told before, it's like, I had to get my ass kicked enough. And in a way, yeah. in a way, like, I feel like that's also a part of God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. Like I had to get bad enough yeah. for me to, to be 
open and willing and surrender enough to the solution. Like, you know, I had to experience just the right amount of pain or so much pain in order for me to accept the solution, accept that I was an alcoholic and accept that if that's the case, then I've also got to take this appropriate action. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to really look at my behavior and see all the evidence and be willing to accept it as evidence that I cannot drink like a normal person. <laughs> I can't. Yeah. And that was a hard pill for me to swallow for a long time. And I, I'm not alone here. Like everybody, everybody that's been in this journey goes through this process of like, yeah, but maybe, yeah, but maybe. Well, Jen, Jen talks about it in right. her story, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like oh, 10 or 12 drinks to a blackout later. That's normal <laughs> drinking, right? No, no, it's not. That's yeah. alcoholic and, drinking. And what I really liked when she, when she said that is I don't think it's normal <laughs> drinking. I don't really have anything to compare it to because I'm not a normal drinker. <laughs> right. right. Um, and, uh, and that's been my case as well. Like, I, you know, one of, one of the things I want to touch on a little bit is that there, you know, there's these big moments for sure. Like the fact, the fact that I've got, that I got sober and that I am sober today is probably the number one greatest thing I've ever done with my life. Um, and through no power of my own, right. right. It has been the, the, um, the number one biggest dramatic and most impactful event that's ever happened in my life. And my life has never been the same since that moment. So, um, obviously that's a huge event and it's very easy for me to point to God in that instance as, um, as you know, the, the force or the, uh, power that was able to get me to a place where I was sober. Mm -hmm. But I think that it's important to mention too, that I see God, you know, doing things for me that I can't do for myself on a daily basis. Um, even if it's still just abstained from drinking alcohol, um, anytime that I'm doing something that I don't want to do, I can generally chalk up to a power greater than myself, right? Uh-huh. Because okay. I know that like left to my own devices, I will, I will do what it is I want to do. And when I do what I want to do, you know, I'm fucking sleeping on a friend's couch, haven't showered in four days, you know, completely sober, taking shots at six o'clock in the morning, Um, you know, smoking weed or fucking scraping pipes and, and trying to find out how I'm going to get enough money to chew 14 pills before the day's over, you know, and that's Cameron left to his own devices. Right. The fact that I'm able to get up, go to a job that I love and, and, you know, be a productive member of society, pay bills, support my wife, support my family, um, uh, talk with a sponsor every day, talk with a sponsee every day, you know, talk with other alcoholics every day, um, go to meetings and anything beyond that, right? Yeah. Um, is in and of itself like God doing for me what I can't do for myself. I had a temporary sponsor who really put things in perspective for me. Um, 
when I was just talking to him about like, Hey man, like what, what's your morning routine? Like, like I want to, I want to hear other people's examples of like a morning routine. And he would tell me, you know, he's like, I, I wake up at four 30. That's definitely not something that everybody can do, but you know, that is something that I have done for a while. He's like, and that is God doing for me <laughs> what I cannot do for myself yeah. because left to my own devices, I'll sleep until, you know, eight thirty, nine o'clock. And I'm just like, it's so funny. I never would have looked at it that way. Sure. But it's such a great way for me to keep things in perspective and for me to maintain that contact with a power greater than myself um, is to remember that, man, left to my own devices, like I know what that looks like. Yeah. I did it. I have all this evidence. I looked at all that stuff already. I know what that looks like. So, you know, if I'm able to do that, it must be something better than me, right? right. It must be something with, with more power than I have because I know when I, I'm powerless. Like I can't do that stuff on my own. So it's such a great thing for me to remember um, and really just the perfect perspective for me to have with all those little things. And I think that that's the point I'm trying to make here is that these simple things are still you know, God doing for me what I can't do for myself. Yeah. And, and I appreciate that I have those people around me that, that can allow me to have that perspective. Yeah. And I, and I, and I love, as you were sharing, you know, it reminds me that we get to choose what that is. I mean, you can, you can justify away all the miracles in your life and chalk them up to sure. coincidence if you want. Mm -hmm. Um, today we get to choose, you know, God over self or, or recovery over addiction. Um, because, you know, we can look back and, and one of the most profound experiences that I had outside of waking up with a gun in my face for the last time was the last time I got out of jail. And I've, I've shared this a couple times, but this is where this recovery started to stick because um, I was out of jail for less than 24 hours. Um, I had a desire to stay sober, but didn't know that I could. Mm -hmm. I, didn't, I didn't think that I could. I wanted to, I knew where the solution was because I'd been coming around long enough. Um, and you know, we invite these things into our lives, both good and bad. I believe that, right? I believe that we invite the solution and we invite the problem and, and based on where we're at in our spiritual maintenance is, is where we're going to be on, on the, um, solution for, mm -hmm. for all this stuff. Yeah. So, so I got out of jail. I was talking to somebody in jail about sobriety and he gave me Tom's number, the guy that got me sober. And, and when I got out, um, I called my mom like I always do. Right. And she got me a hotel room because again, I was living on self. So I had nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> a good example of, of me. Did you have underwear this time? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think. Okay. If I did, it was probably given to me by either by the, the church or the state. <laughs> okay. I certainly didn't buy it, right? Because that was me doing for me what I could do for myself. I have, right. I have nothing when I do for me what I can do for myself. Mm -hmm. um, and so while I'm in jail, I also play the part just like I do in the street. Mm -hmm. You know, and I got some phone numbers. Um, my mom got me a hotel room and I made two phone calls that night. And one of them was to a guy that I was in jail with and he answered and he, and, and, uh, I wanted to get high, man. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I had the desire to use. Was this I was, heroin? I was scared. I, I told him where I was at, told him to bring me some heroin. I was going to jump right back in where, where I left off. off. Yeah. I had money. My mom gave me some money. You know, and I'm 33 years old, and my mom, my mother, right. gave me money. Yeah. As an adult. That's how it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's embarrassing, man. Uh, but it is what it yeah, is. It's uh, reality. I mean, people, people yeah, it's reality. People in... in addiction and recovery know what i'm talking about Mm -hmm. um again me doing for me what i can do for myself and i told him where i was at and i said bring me some heroin bro bring me some of that cheese and he said bet i'll be there and i called tom and uh the heroin didn't show up aa did and that was definitely a power greater than myself Showing up, doing for me what I could not do for myself. Absolutely. I cannot get sober on my own. Like, there's so much evidence against it. Uh, every good intention, every desire, every promise, every, every good, in, you know, all, all, the, all the intention in the world and, like, the want couldn't get me sober. Mm-hmm. It couldn't. I tried and tried and tried to, to vow it off and change substances and go to therapy and lie to my therapist you know who knew that honesty was going to work yeah at one point i prayed to be sober and i sit here sober so like you said how dare i like you said like you said i said yeah like i said that you said (laughs) how fucking dare i yeah deny the power of this thing and I love that story, Willie. I love that story. Every time you tell that story, I'm just like, that is such a cool, because the, we don't always get such clear examples. They're not always so black and white. And that is just so A or B and A showed up, you know, and, and it is just such a, such a clear example of that happening. And so I, 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 I appreciate every time you share that story. Thanks. And I think, you know, one of the important things as, as we're talking, I'm like, why? Because we talked about perspective, why? Right. Like we get to choose, like we can, we can shoo away all the things that are, you know, truly, um, God shots as coincidence or whatever. We get to decide how we feel about those things. And as you were talking about that, I was thinking about like, why, why do we choose? Why do we choose to look at those things as if like, why did my, why did my temporary sponsor choose to believe that that was God doing for him what he couldn't do for himself? Right. right. Like instead of saying, Oh yeah, I'm just somebody that gets up at four thirty now. Like I've broken that old habit and now I'm somebody that gets up at four thirty. you know? And him having that perspective of, no, this is God doing for me what I can't do for myself. Well, what it does is it keeps us humble, right? Yeah, it gets us right size. Exactly. Because the minute that I start thinking that I can do this, <laughs> you know what I mean? Then you got it. Yeah, then I got it. I don't need I don't need you. I don't need this show. I don't need Jordan. Like I got this. Like this isn't important. Like I can do all this on my own. Like and then I start believing the bullshit. Maybe I can have a drink. Maybe, yeah. maybe I'm fixed now. Maybe I'm cured. Like, and, and so like, I've got to remain humble. I feel like Jordan wants to say something. Jordan, are you sure? 
I, I was just laughing. I can I can relate with all that all too well. All too well. I really I really get reassured when Jordan's back there nodding his head and <laughs> yep. um and I, you guys yeah. are fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, man, I mean and that and that's one of the important things is like it keeps me out of that ego. And if there's one thing that I was able to learn in my recovery journey is that that ego will fucking take me down, man. Yeah. And I, and I really appreciate the terminology that, you know, that, um, I've heard in the rooms that you've used that my sponsor used, that was introduced to me, you know, through, through the AA, which is like, I got to look at me right size, right size, like not too big and not too small either. Yeah. Because I have a tendency to either think that I'm fucking God or that I'm completely worthless. Yeah. And, you know, and that's what it does for me is it keeps me humble. And that's what I'm able to, um, to get from this program is I know the action that I have to take in order to remain humble enough to get through the day sober and like myself the right way. Yeah. And so that's, I, I, I think that, um, yeah, I just wanted to touch on that while we were talking about that. Yeah, because humility is super important, you know. Um, forced humility isn't always fun. But um, you got to be careful because uh, once I found, once I truly did step three, I turned my will and my life over to the care of God um, with Tom. Um, after, after that experience and AA showed up, uh, and I jumped into step work and sponsorship and mm-hmm. meetings and, and service and home groups. And, you know, I, I, I'm doing the deal, right? Yeah. Um, doing this 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, the way they're outlined in the big book and taught to me by my sponsor at the time. Um, we did a step three. And when I turned my will and my life over to the care of God, as I understood him, a lot of miraculous things happened Mm -hmm. in my life. And one of them was, uh, I choose to believe that God wiped away everything I thought I knew about him and gave me an absolute clean slate. And I call that my moment, my my time of atheism. Right. And I've shared about that. And I needed that time of atheism to break away from what I thought God was. Right. I had, I had someone else's conception of a power greater than myself that was killing me. And willingness for me comes from a place where what I want in little bits comes uninvitedly in all the time. Yeah. Right. And so when, when the violence and the chaos of street activity and the negative thinking and self-destruction from negative thinking and poor outlook on self, come in every minute of every day all the time when all I want to do is relax and that's what my life becomes is a constant state of dodging inconveniences and dodging negative mm. behaviors and dodging negative people and and just trying to maintain and keep my head above water if you will where I'm drowning in negativity I become willing to do whatever is necessary to get back on the boat yeah right and and for me, I've had enough experiences of that. And, and Jen shares a, a lot of great experiences of that exact thing. That's the best way that I can visualize what's going on is, is we're out there drowning and I'm, now I'm willing to get on the boat. I, I, now I know that I can't swim this far alone and I need some help. And, and I ask for help and the hand of AA reaches out. Yeah. 
and, and it reaches out in such a way that it's never let go. Even if I jump back in the water mm-hmm. and try to swim on mm-hmm. my own, mm-hmm. it, it, it keeps a hold of me. Like there's, yeah. there's a fucking, there's a spiritual rope tied around me yeah. for when I forget what a precious gift this lifestyle is. And, and ego creeps in and the illusion of self keeps in and, and I start thinking that I'm this and I'm that. And, and I become the opposite of humble. <laughs> what, yeah. What is the opposite of humble? Egotistical? Yeah. Eagle testicles. Um, you can't just say that. But, um, you know, when that creeps back in and I, I start running on self-will, I jump back in the water because I want to get it to land as fast as possible and the boat's going too slow. And when I'm all petered out... <laughs> can't just say that either when i'm all exhausted <laughs> i don't what else do i call it when when i when i've run the motor of self-will completely out of fuel depleted yeah yeah the rope connected to the power that i turn my will and my life over reels me back in in all the good ways and i'm reminded of what size i really am mm. and i get back in the boat and i pick up my oar and i row as part of the team of solution, right? I become part of again. So, dude, why don't you take this microphone and pick it up and then drop it? Yeah, I, um, I, I, I asked that it come through me, not from me. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's beautiful, man. And I, and I think that it's a beautiful example of, and this is what Jen talks about in her story is how God works through those people. Yeah. You know, works through the people that we've met in AA and, and I'll, I'll be the first to say doesn't just happen with people in AA. You know, it's not just God working through people of AA. God works through all sorts of people. It's just that that's our experience, right? Yeah. So yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. God got, you know, this, this, this recovery podcast that we're on, I could not have come up with this on my own. Yeah. In fact, I didn't even want to do this with the original idea that was, was pitched. You know, and and thankfully I got out of the way and it happened out the way that it has because um, it's such a great platform for me to grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. I've yeah. grown. I've grown so much through being able to meet the people like Jen, who's going to share her story, um, to remind me that we've come a long way and that we are the lucky ones. We, we are the. Lucky we really ones. are the lucky ones, just in the fact that we're willing to get out of the way for a solution. Right? So didn't come overnight. No. And, and neither did the destruction of her life. So I, I'm, I, I just got to say again, if you're triggered by heavy shit, uh, just be prepared because her story is, is one of the, the heavier stories that we've shared on the show, but the turnaround and, and miracles that have happened in it are, are abundant. And so I think it's appropriate that she shares the way that she does. And worth hearing. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So yeah. what do you say? Let's do it. Yeah. This week's war story is brought to you by Brainwashed Coffee. Brainwashed Coffee is a damn good coffee with a damn good cause. 50% of all proceeds go back into the recovery community, which makes it a perfect partner for us here at the Other Side of Hell podcast. With delicious blends like Coffee Commitment, Found a New Freedom, We drink a hell of a lot of it here, and it gives us the energy we need to deliver a quality show. Right now, you can get $5 off your coffee purchase at brainwashedcoffeeco.com using promo code OTHERSIDE. Clean your bean. Brainwashed coffee. 
Now, without further ado, here is this week's war story. Well, my name is Jennifer and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, my sobriety date is August 26th of 2019. And I came into these rooms uh, much like everybody else, battered and broken, you know. Uh, I didn't start off my life thinking I would be in an alcoholic or an addict or have an addiction to anything. I thought life was just going to be great. You know, when I was a child, I lived with a mom and a dad and a sister, and we lived in a beautiful house and had this beautiful life. And then one day it came crashing down. You know, when I was in third grade, I remember sitting at the front door in front of my dad crying and begging him not to leave. And, uh, and he left. And I think that was the first time in my life where I was shown how how disposable I was. At least that's what I thought. I thought that this man leaving my life, my hero, you know, my family provider, I thought that uh, he was my everything. And for him to walk out that door showed me and proved to me that I was worth nothing. And I carried that throughout my life. And I think that's what I used to propel myself into a, into a life where I just, um, I just wanted attention and I wanted love. And I think that was the first uh, step for me and, and my my addictions, you know, I, um, I fell apart after he left. Right. I know that, um, for me losing the one person I thought was in my corner and, and being left with my mom who I couldn't relate to and was really never around on my sister who didn't seem as affected as I was, you know, um, all of these things played a big part in the person that I became. So, uh, he left when I was in third grade. And by the time I was 11, I was uh, smoking cigarettes and uh, huffing Freon from outside of the air conditioning units, you know, because someone said, hey, this makes this really cool noise and you feel different. And uh, you didn't have to tell me twice. You could have said, put your mouth on the, you know, exhaust pipe of a car. If it's going to get my head to be different, I'm going to go ahead and do it. And it started off from there. As crazy as it sounds, I, um, I just didn't think at the time, right, that me choosing to smoke cigarettes or me choosing to huff on Freon was going to lead to the life I ended up living. I, um, I started smoking weed a little bit after, and these things just were things that people in my neighborhood were doing. And because they were doing it, I needed to do it too, because I wanted to be included. I think the theme for my life was just wanting to feel like I was a part of, and I hear that a lot in these rooms. And it's, it's sad to think that I didn't, I didn't feel like I was ever going to be a part of anything. I always felt like I was different. And I always felt like I needed to make sure that everybody in my life wanted me there. And I turned into a chameleon really fast. So at 13 years old, you know, I'm drinking and I'm smoking weed and I'm not doing the Freon anymore. Cause like, that's lame. Right. You know, after 11 years old, you shouldn't do that shit anymore. But I started doing other things, right. I started dressing a little different. I started wanting the attention of boys. I started really reaching out of my shell is what I call it and tried to be as unique as possible so that I could get the attention from everybody that I wanted. And this chameleon formed, right? And I became whatever you, whatever I thought you needed from me so that you would like me and accept me. And what that looked like for me at the age of 13 was starting to hang out with the wrong crowd. And they were the right crowd for me at the time, right? We all choose those really cool friends that are down to do whatever, like they're down to do whatever. And it sounds cool at the time. So I was down to do whatever. So at the age of 14, on December 24th, I uh, 
bought my first sack of meth with my Christmas money. So, you know, that was a fat sack. I had no idea what I was doing. And uh, we did the whole thing, me and four other girls. And we snorted it and we played games and we colored and we were up for three days and we smoked cigarettes and we had a great time. And it was this really fun thing. And this group of girls really felt like my family. We loved each other. It was great. <laughs> that lasted like a six, a cool six months, right? Because I don't know about you, but meth took me out real fast. And, uh, and I just rode the wave. And in that time, I, um, I had this really cool experience of losing my virginity to rape. And it happened at one of my guy friends' houses. And I was drugged which is really crazy to me because I, I love drugs and I had no idea. And I woke up in this situation where I'd lost my virginity and didn't really have an idea of what had happened. I just knew I was sore and I was wearing some guy's pants and uh, he drove me home and gave me a hug and dropped me off. And about three weeks later, I started feeling weird. And four weeks later, I was rushed to the emergency room because I had gotten pregnant in my fallopian tube and had what's called an ectopic pregnancy and faced an emergency surgery where I was told I would never have kids. And through this time, my drug use got a little bit more intense because here I am having to explain to my parents why I'm no longer a virgin. Here I am having to figure out, well, what the hell happened? Because I can't remember. And um, it was scary. I had no idea what I was going to do. So I just turned, I turned to drug use and I, I kept drinking and I kept doing meth and, and slowly, but surely it went from having a good party time to needing it as a part of my life. I didn't know how to function on a daily basis without having that drug in my system. I didn't know how to function at school without knowing I had a sack to go home to, or a sack I could use while I was in the bathroom. And this continued and progressed and my life just circled around my drug use. And I did everything that I could to kind of forget the fact that I wasn't going to be able to have kids, forget the fact that I have no idea how I, how I had sex for the first time. Like all of these things, I just want to just press and, and tuck down deep inside of me. Um, by the time I was 19 years old, I was freely giving my body to anybody that would have it because that meant that I was loved, right? And it was my choice to make because since I couldn't remember the first time, I would make sure I made the choice every time after that to give my body to a man and have it be my choice. And I used that as a way to get drugs. You know, um, I never, I never sold myself for money, but I definitely sold myself for drugs. And that realization came to me uh, after about a year of sobriety, that that's what I was doing. Cause I really just thought it was me making the choice to have, have sex and a connection. And really the choice was to get me high. And I did whatever I needed to do to get, to get, mine, right? I did whatever I needed to do to make sure that I got my drugs and I did them. And it didn't matter who I was hurting or what I was doing. And during that time, I took this really cool hostage and had this really amazing experience where I got sick when I was smoking meth. And I was like, what the hell's happening? And so I took myself to the hospital. I peed on a stick and I was pregnant. So I went from not being able to have children being a full-blown meth addict to boom, you're pregnant. And at that time, I, I just couldn't understand what was happening, right? I was like, this is a sick joke, God. Like, it's really not funny. Like, if you need me to slow down, like you could have arrested me, it's fine. Um, I was told by the doctor that if I stopped my drug use abruptly, that I would have a miscarriage. 
So in my addict mind, that gave me the go ahead to slowly wean off of meth. And slowly weaning off of meth during that pregnancy, I found out when I was probably about four weeks along, it took me until I was at the end of my fifth month to stop smoking meth, even though it made me sick and it, and it hurt to smoke and my body rejected every ounce of it. I could not stop knowing I was pregnant with a child I should have never had knowing that I could be damaging her inside of me, but because I don't have a defense against it. I had no idea what I was doing and I couldn't stop. And that weaning off literally was still smoking so much a day that my life was consumed by it. And um, I don't even know how I stopped when I was at the end of five months, but I did when I had my daughter. And um, I stopped smoking at about when she was three months old, right? I, uh, was working at Starbucks 24 hours a day Starbucks. And I was working the night shift, taking care of her during the day. And I was tired of shit. And I was like, you know what? I know what's going to help. I'm going to go ahead and just get a sack. I'll be able to stay up through the shift. I need to make this money. I got to support her. And not even three weeks later, I uh, was held up at gunpoint by a girl that I thought was my friend, by my best friend at the time and her boyfriend. And my daughter was in the next room crying when these people went through my parents' house and stole from them and threatened my life while my daughter was in the next room and the next day her father came and picked her up and I and I had to go to rehab for my first time and I went to an inpatient treatment center out in the desert where I did 60 days of just straight program and and did all these steps that I had no idea what they were and I didn't really want to quit and someone was shoving them down my throat so quickly and all of a sudden I went from like feeling like shit to having to tell people I'm sorry to like understanding who I am and like not wanting any of it. Uh, I later realized that I coughed a resentment towards a 12 step program. And that sort of kept me out of any program since then, you know, like I really felt like these people were attacking me. How dare you try to tell me about myself? Excuse me. Like, I don't need none of this. My life's not that bad. Yeah, I get high, you know, yeah, I can't stop. I had a kid, whatever things, things are whatever. I'm fine. It's okay. And I really thought that I was going to be able to live life out of a treatment center on my own terms. Well, let's, let me just tell you how, how cool that worked at about 90 days. I lost the place that I was living and had to move in with a couple of girls that I didn't really know that well. And their coping mechanism was cocaine. So that became my coping mechanism as well. So I just started doing cocaine. And if you're an addict, like I'm an addict, cocaine doesn't hit like meth. So guess what I did a few weeks later? I got some meth. I found me um, a dealer and I became his girlfriend and boom, I was off and running. And I really just rode that train for as long as I could. I uh, gave up almost all of my rights to my daughter, thinking that that was the best thing for her because I knew I couldn't stop. And I, and in my head, how I played it out to myself was God, you're an addict. You know that you can't stop. The best thing for her is to give her up. And in reality, it was because I needed to get high without her there. Right. Because as an addict, I cannot tell myself to stop. I do not know how I don't have the ability to put it away and never touch it again. And I didn't know that at the time. And I convinced myself that I was making the right decision so that I wouldn't feel guilty about the decision I was making. And thank God her father was around to take care of her, right? The hostage that I took when I got pregnant with her um, loved her enough 
in spite of his hatred for me to be able to take care of her. And he did. Um, I slowly but surely just kept getting worse. I ended up not being with that guy anymore uh, after he abused me enough to make me want to leave. And I started hanging out with a rougher crowd. And my addiction took me to a place that I never thought I would revisit. And that was a place where I became the girlfriend of my rapist. And I dated my rapist and I was okay with it because I was getting as high as I wanted to get on what I needed. My needs were getting met regardless of what it felt like inside me and what kind of flashbacks would happen when we would be intimate and the things that would go through my mind. And that relationship took me to a house one evening where we were just supposed to be having a barbecue. And all of a sudden there was people doing a home invasion on us. And I ran upstairs with everybody that was with us and I put them in the bedroom and we laid on the bed and I covered them up with a blanket. And I told them, you know, just close your eyes and cover your ears. You don't want to hear any of this because I didn't know what was going to happen. And what ended up happening in the same bedroom we were in was that I got to watch my boyfriend get shot or stabbed in the face. I still don't really know which one. And I got to witness someone to get their life taken from them. And um, after driving my boyfriend to the hospital and dropping him off for medical care and hiding at my friend's house, we were detained by the police and questioned. And after being released from the police station, I thought everything was gonna be okay. And then um, everything wasn't okay. Everything was rough. I could have died and I didn't even think twice about it. I just wanted to get high. I watched someone lose their life and I didn't think twice about it because I just wanted to get high. That landed me um, in violation of my felony probation on 12 counts, which landed me in jail. And on December 24th of 2007, I called my daughter from jail and for the first time ever from her mouth, I heard her say mama and my insides broke. Here I was sitting in jail on her birthday and she, I didn't say anything first and she just said mama. And how selfish do you have to be to have this young, beautiful gift, this miracle given to you and that you take it for granted. And, um, and I couldn't understand then what was happening, but after a little bit of work, I understood that this was my first spiritual experience. This was where my higher power came in and said, yo, Hey, guess what? You are not doing what you need to be doing. And I know you don't know how to stop, but let me break your heart. Let me break it sufficiently enough for you to be desperate enough to stop what you're doing. And um, I can, I could say that at this time, I completely stopped wanting to do meth. I no longer had the desire. And what I did was I got into a program inside of jail. And for the 265 days that I was incarcerated, I was going to NA meetings and AA meetings that they brought inside. I was going to church and in my Bible and uh, reaching out to a God that I never thought I wanted and learning a little bit about myself. And I would love to say that I've been sober since 2007, right? I would love to say that my clean date was December 12th, 2007, when I got locked up. But guess what? It wasn't because I, after getting out and being dry for six years, 
thought that it would be okay for me to drink because it's not methamphetamines. And I think that it gets lost in translation sometimes just because I'm not doing the drug of, of my drug of choice, right? My drug of choice is what I used to say, um, that everything was okay because as long as I'm, as long as I'm not smoking meth, I'm not going to rob people. As long as I'm not smoking meth, I'm not going to be dating my rapist. As long as I'm not doing this one drug, my life is fine. And when it first started out, when my drinking first started, it was like normal drinking, like what I thought normal drinking was, which was going out having like eight to 10 drinks and blacking out. That's normal. That's how we all drink, right? <sighs> it's not just FYI. That's not how you drink, I guess. I don't know. I'm not normal. So I can't, I can't relate to that kind of story. But um, for me, that was normal drinking. And it went from being fun and exciting and, and enjoying it, like, you know, much like my Matthews did to being a necessity in my life. So much so that I would plan for the days that I didn't have my children. Oh, PS, I have a son. He was born four years after my daughter was. So sometimes doctors are really, really wrong. Um, so uh, I have two little miracles and they're in my life today. And, and thank God that they are because they help me see myself more often than, um, than if I was just alone. So I don't know, guys, like I, I feel like I can relate to a lot of people I've heard in the rooms and I can, I can continue to tell you my, what happened story. And I think I told you like the big highlights and everything, but I think that the biggest thing is that no matter how much I wanted to stop, I couldn't, no matter how much I wanted to put it down and not choose that over everything in my life, I couldn't, I, I had no ability to stop once I put anything into my body, anything like meth, ecstasy, acid, alcohol, you know, like it didn't matter. You could have said that this was just going to make me get a little fucked up. And I would have said, well, let's take 17 of them because that was normal for me. And I became consumed to the point where everything else in my life just faded away. And all I can think about was, God, how am I going to go get drunk this weekend? Who do I need to call so we can drink today on a Tuesday? Do I need to really go to work on time tomorrow or can I call in a little bit late because my hangover is probably going to be a bit rough and that's how I lived my life and I, I convinced myself because it wasn't methamphetamines everything was okay right until my last drunk I went out at 4 30 to a brunch um, in LA we started in one end of LA and by the time we got to where the brunch was I had already had you know like a good portion of the vodka bottle um, by the time we got inside of the brunch, I remember having a drink with a couple of my friends and by five o'clock, I'm assuming, cause that's when the last picture was taken. I was blackout drunk. And I woke up at five o'clock in the morning in a stranger's hotel room in a bed with people I didn't know. In a, in a hotel, I didn't know I was in, in an area. I had no idea what, what was going on, you know, and this was the story of my life is making the decisions where I would get blackout drunk. And then I would wake up in a situation where I was like, Oh fuck. I went into the bathroom and looked at myself and realized that I had a white powder all over my face, which means I did some drug that I can't remember and um, somehow made it to my house and forgot that I had to work that day. Had to call and lie to my boss who I, I just got this job from. It was going to be my first day, right? This dream job that I'd been planning to get. And I 
I fucked it off because I wanted to go just have a good time with my friends. And I got blackout drunk and stranded in LA. And um, this, this guy that works with me on my other job had called and asked for, for my assistance. And I, I walked over to him and he asked me, well, hey, why aren't you at your other job? You started to work today. And as much as I didn't want to do it, you know, something took control of me and, and told this guy, you know what? I got blackout drunk last night. I woke up in LA this morning and I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I have no idea what to do. I don't, I, I don't want to do this anymore, but I don't know how to stop. And uh, this man told me, I've got a meeting that you can go to. And within 15 minutes, he sent me at least three addresses and times for meetings that were occurring the same day. And I showed up to this meeting in like the grossest pajama pants you've ever seen, this nasty sweatshirt. My hair was all matted. I was feeling like ass because hello, you know, I got blackout drunk the day before. So it's called a hangover. It looks really beautiful on me. And I walked into this meeting and these women were like pantsuits and dresses and they looked put together. And um, I walked in just feeling it like, damn it. I don't belong here. Like, are you sure I'm in the right place? Like you guys are you guys are alcoholics. I don't believe it. And you know what happened for the first time ever is that I was embraced by women who I didn't know. And they hugged me and they told me, welcome. You know, I felt more loved in that moment with these beautiful women and their amazing clothes with me looking the worst that I've looked in a long time and feeling the lowest that I felt about myself. I felt more love in that moment and more like I belonged in that one moment than I had in the past 16 years. And you know what I did is I kept coming back and I kept staying. And for, for quite some time, it, it took me a little bit to get a sponsor and this beautiful lady who uh, saw how sick I was still, you know, she said, Hey, I could be your temporary sponsor. And that woman saved my life. She gave me the best piece of advice that I ever heard because I went to a Friday night meeting dressed up, makeup done, hair done. And I promise you, I can clean up really nicely. And I really felt myself that night. And she saw that I dressed up and looked nice. And I had made a comment about going out after the meeting. And she said, yeah, we're going to go out to Denny's after the meeting. And I heard that you can't say no to your sponsor. So I was like, yeah, we'll go to Denny's after the meeting. And you know what she said to me when we got to Denny's? She said, we talked for a little bit and I was like, well, I'm going to go. And she's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just going to give you, um, I'm just going to, I'm just going to suggest something to you. And I said, okay. And she's like, why don't you go home and wash the pretty off your face? And damn, I was like this bitch, but guess what I did? I went home and I washed the pretty off my face and I put my head on the pillow and I went to sleep and I woke up sober the next day. And that was the, that was like the, second epiphany that I had, like, damn, it was going to be that easy, that easy after a decision I made to no longer drink or do drugs. It was going to be that easy for me. And I was just going to do it. And I continued to go to meetings and then I continued to, to be in the work. And I got into, um, the big books, Alcoholics Anonymous 12 step program. Right. And I did these 12 steps and I learned how to, I learned how to let go and understand that I'm powerless. And I learned that I was an alcoholic at the at the center of my being, I have no control over anything that I put into my body. Cause after the first one, I just want more and more and more. And I don't know how to stop. And it took me, 
you know, going through those steps twice and really seeing who I was and continually wanting to work on myself for me to understand who I am today. And it's not all peaches and cream. I'm not over here excited about life all the time. I face depressive episodes. I have social anxiety disorder. My disease continues to lie to me about who I am and how I present myself. And for a long time, I really, really wanted to impress you, any of you. I wanted you to want me so that I could want myself. I wanted you to love me so that I could love myself. And this program and this life of sobriety and recovery has afforded me the ability to look in the mirror and love who I see today. I can look in the mirror without crying and hating who she is staring back at me. And I can look in the mirror and say, God, girl, look at what, look at what your higher power has given you. Look at how you have allowed yourself to let go and let your higher power be in your life, you know? And I continue to be of service and I continue to roll with the people in this program that I'm in and it's blessed my life. And I could talk about the materialistic things that have been given to me, right? The things that I've worked for, but in the reality, like the biggest gift that I was given was the gift of self-love, you know, because I didn't know how to do that. And I thought that I needed to do it through everybody else. And uh, I know today that it has nothing to do with you and it has everything to do with me. And if I didn't have my recovery, I wouldn't have any of this. So thank you. Yeah, I'm always thank you so much. That yeah. that gift of self love. Mm-hmm. I can I can relate with that. When I when I have it, right? I and I wish I could keep it all the time, but it when when it's there, it's so oh powerful. Like yeah. what she's saying, that gift of self love is to look in the mirror and not hate who you see today. And it comes through that work that what a, what an amazing life. And I don't Again, I'm a little bit speechless about where she's at today. Yeah, thank you. I was amazing, um, dude. Just, just to hear, you know, these are the these are the stories that I just really love. I mean, every story that we get is so moving to just hear where people are compared to where they've been, and um, and I hope people recognize that we're not trying to glorify any behavior. Like when we have people tell us, you know, their war stories, it's, it's simply so we have that contrast. Yeah. Right. So that we're able to see, man, like if I'm able to go through that and get here, then there's hope for you too. Yeah. Um, especially because most of us were so hopeless. Yeah. You know? And she, she was an example of that. Exactly. I mean, she used while she was pregnant when she wasn't even supposed to get pregnant. Yeah, that that part of her story is kind of crazy. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of her story that's kind of crazy, but um, just that same thing that we all felt, you know, like growing up is is just never felt like you fit in. And then as soon as she found something that that was going to do it for her, that was going to, you know, change her head, she was all about it. All about it. Yeah. No matter what it was. And the huffing, you know, that's the first time I think, maybe not the first time, but it's been a sec since we've heard somebody talk about. I was, I was a huffer. Yeah. And, and so many people are. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, there's a lot of people that probably forget about it because it is so common. Yeah. Just change, change the way I feel mm-hmm. now. And, and, and I really like how she's able to identify where that feeling of disposableness came from, you know, her dad leaving and, yeah. and that was so unexpected. And then everything kind of spiraled out of, you know, how, how old are you in third grade? Eight, nine, you know? Yeah, Some, I think somewhere that's, around I think that's there. About so right. Nine, ten. By fourth, fifth grade, she was smoking, and and I can relate with that. 
I, I mean, I was smoking as soon as I could light cigarettes and uh, huffing in school in fifth, sixth, well, I didn't go to fifth grade, but I went to fourth grade twice and then fifth grade or sixth grade, I was huffing rubber cement in school and Dare came along and started experimenting by, you know, she was 14 when she first bought meth. Yeah. Bought her own, partied. Yeah, had that, had that methamphetamine connection with those other girls. Well, because she was, she was, you know, that friend that was down for anything. Yeah, just one of those people. And I, I, you know, when she said that, I was like, man, I, I don't know that I was one of those people, but I knew those people. Yeah, like my my story is a little bit different, and that you know, a lot of it didn't happen until later. But I knew those people. Mm-hmm. You know, just were like, man, they'll yeah. do anything. Yeah, and I and I love where she's at today. I, I really do appreciate where you're at today with that, um, being able to wash the pretty off your face. And for, for me, when, when she shares that part, um, it's like wash the bullshit off mm-hmm. and be recovered. Yeah. Go and be like sober. Sort of wash the mask off yeah. too, right? Yeah. Go be sober. Mm-hmm. Be sober tonight. And, and she did. And it, it was a it was a game changer. It was a revelation. Her. She's yeah. like, who knew it was this simple? And that's the thing is like, it's simple. It's not easy. Yeah. We make it hard. Yeah. But it really can be just so simple. Both directions. Yeah. You know? Like like it's really simple to go back out. You know, I feel good. Uh, I got I got my face on. Mm-hmm. I'm ready for whatever's coming. And and there's God through another alcoholic saying, you need to go to bed. Yeah. Is what needs to happen. Yep. You know, as a suggestion. <laughs> yeah. I, just so you know, when sponsors suggest stuff, it's a subtle command. May I make a suggestion? Oh, shit. <laughs> Here it comes. You know, it's a subtle command, but you know, her sharing her sharing about, you know, being being the dirtiest girl in the room and everybody putting her hands around her, like like putting her arms around her. Um that's that's it. That's that's the service of AA. That's that hand of AA. Mm-hmm. Going, we don't give a fuck about these suits. We care about you. We don't care about the clothes that we have. You know, this is the newcomer we've been waiting yeah. for. And and to get to be on that side of it now where she's at, where she talks about being of service, you know, mm-hmm. where we're on this side of the table and we get to be that hand of AA. We get to be that hand of recovery. We get to be that voice of hope, that message that comes through us from time to time when we get out of the way and we get to be the vessel for somebody else's hope, it's so it, it's how dare I Yeah. try to fuck this up. How dare you, you know, get to meet people like this. And we had a really great conversation after, um, after, you know, 25 minutes isn't very long to, to get a story out there, but we were able to talk for a little while after and, and it brought up some points for me, you know, because, um, I was the drug dealer yeah, and, and it made me wonder, you know, how many, how many girls were with me for the dope and how, you know, where, where had I played the, the villain out there? And, you know, I, I, that's what it was all about for me was, uh, I needed that validation through other people just like she did. Well, and what a cool opportunity. And that's why, that's why, you know, we have these conversations like it's not always easy shit to talk about, but by her sharing that you were able to look at something from your past mm-hmm. and say, 
what what was my role in this and and more will be revealed right like yeah. maybe there's some work that you'll need to do around that you to know be able to ninth step um, it and and again like some growth that could happen yeah so that's that's why we do this that's why she shares her story that's why we we share on the podcast and um and it was just an amazing story powerful powerful um, turnaround yeah and i really i can't thank you enough yeah thank you congratulations on on all your success, especially getting to be a mother. It's super important. So Yeah. Thanks, Cameron. Thanks, Willie. Yeah. You say. Wrap it out. Yeah, let's do it. Um, Jordan. I'll say thanks to Jordan. Rylan. Thanks to Rylan. Thanks to the listeners. Thanks to everybody Viewers. who supports the show. Yeah. We've uh, we've had a lot of really great people reach out to us and let us know that they're uh, they're getting a lot from it and, and uh uh, we can't hear that enough. Yeah, so thank you. Yeah, thank you all. Cameron, thank you. Thank you, brother. And with that, boom. We'll see you on the other side. Remember, you are worth the work. The Other Side of Hell is a do-it-yourself podcast. For more information, recovery resources, and contact info, check out our website at theothersideofhellpodcast.com. You can help us spread our message by liking and subscribing, giving us a follow, or a five-star rating.